This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we're prepared. We always take a few moments of silent prayer so that if you need to exercise the opportunity of using 1 John 1.9, you can confess your sins in the privacy of your priesthood to God the Father, and we know that we are instantly forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness, whether we remember it or realize it or not. And we are restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can resume our spiritual life. So let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to study your word, that as church-age believers we have a completed canon of Scripture. You have given us everything we need to know. You have given us all pertaining to life and godliness, and that there's nothing left out. And no matter how much we study or how long we study or how deeply we study, there's always more to learn. There's always more to understand and there's more to apply. And Father, we pray that we would be teachable this evening, that we would be responsive to the Holy Spirit as He makes these things clear to us, that we can see how they apply to our own lives, so that we can advance spiritually, that you might be glorified in time and in eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 11. And we continue our study. Now James is writing this epistle to teach us how to have maximum happiness in life despite our circumstances. No matter what the test might be, no matter how extreme the adversity or how overwhelming the catastrophe or painful the heartache, no matter how deeply emotional we might be, we are commanded to count it all joy. That's the command back in Ephesians, I mean back in James chapter 1. And that is what this book is all about. The more we study this, the more I am convinced that James told us what we're supposed to do right up front and he spends the rest of the epistle telling us how to get there. Because without understanding the dynamics of this epistle, you could start off thinking that was the first thing you do. But as we get into this epistle, all of a sudden we get a greater and greater glimpse of this congregation that he's writing to. We start off in the first chapter, everything seems pretty good. He has on a very velvet, soft glove. By the time he gets down into the middle of chapter 3, all of a sudden you realize there's some real problems in this congregation. He started off telling them 
But they needed to be quick to hear. That is, they needed to make learning Bible doctrine the number one priority in their life. They need to be quick to hear. And then, second, slow to speak. And we began to realize that the congregation was torn asunder by sins of the tongue. It was slander, gossip, maligning. And then as he advanced through that discussion about the competition between different members in the congregation who thought they uh, had it all together, then he, um, they thought they could teach and they were proud of themselves and so they were dividing up. Then he got down into the real problems, starting in verse 13 of chapter 3, dealing with the mental attitude sins, the arrogance, the self-absorption, the division, the fragmentation, not only in the congregation, but fragmentation in the souls of the members of the church. See, this is the real problem. If we are not in the process of walking by means of the Spirit so that we can utilize the ten stress busters that we've studied, and we have our diagram here that when we confess our sins, we're filled with the Spirit, and we move into the fortress, the soul fortress that God provides. All through the Psalms, the psalmist describes the Lord is our shield, our rock, our fortress, our bulwark. And so this is a portrayal of that. What is it that we are to use from the Word of God that enables us to, to be protected from the storms of adversity? And we enter that through 1 John 1, nine. When we confess our sins, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the foundation. And then different components, different bricks make up that fortress. There's grace orientation, understanding that the issue is God's plan, not our plan, God's will, not our will. The issue is that He has done everything for us, and it doesn't matter what we do or don't do. It's not up to our personality, not up to our striving, our works. Nothing we do impresses God. What should impress us is everything that God has done for us. The closer we get to grace understanding, to grace orientation, the more we align our lives on that principle. And if we don't get this in place, we're never going to get up here to where we have impersonal love for all mankind or unconditional love for mankind, personal love for God. We've got grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. These really work together. Doctrinal orientation is where we align ourselves with the Word of God and we let our thinking be totally transformed by it. And then we have the other uh, problem-solving devices, the faith rest drill, trusting God, where the will of God, the Word of God, becomes more real to us than any experience, heartache, difficulty, adversity, calamity, no matter how overwhelming the experience might be. And this is especially true if you come out of a charismatic background, you've had what you think is an experience with God speaking in tongues or God speaking to you, something like that. When the Word of God becomes more real than any experience, that's when you're walking by faith. Scripture says we are to walk by faith and not by sight. It is not on the basis of human empiricism or rationalism, but by trusting the promises in the Word of God. Moses said the battle is the Lord's, it is not our battle. Then we have personal sense of our eternal destiny when we realize that everything we're doing today, all of our decisions, impact where we are in eternity. Then we have the Personal love for God, the, the triplex of our love, of the love complex or love triplex, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And then that culminates in the most advanced system for problem solving, which is inner happiness. And that's the theme of this whole epistle is how we can have that inner happiness. And when James uses the term joy, he uses that as a technical term for the kind of tranquility, 
contentment, peace, and happiness that Jesus Christ bequeaths to every church-age believer. Now, thinking about that, I want you to hold your place in James and turn back to a, what should be a well-marked place in your Bible, the Gospel of John. I'm going to look at two different verses in John chapter 15. We'll get there eventually on Sunday morning as we go through the upper room discourse, but we need to take a look at it this evening. John 15, Jesus says in John 15:11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And then if you turn over a page or two to John 17:13, in his high priestly prayer, this is the, John 17 is the Lord's prayer. This is the true Lord's prayer when he was praying to the Father the night before he went to the cross. Verse 13, Jesus said, But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Now let's stop a minute while we're thinking about joy. What is Jesus saying here? What are some little, just a couple of little observations we need to make about these two verses. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And But now I come to thee and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy made full in themselves. First point of observation is that joy here is not the emotional happiness which is common to any and every member of the human race, believer or unbeliever. This is a particular kind of joy. So when you read this, don't think in terms of the kind of happy exultation you have when you were a small child and you came running down the stairs on Christmas morning and you saw just what you wanted sitting there under the Christmas tree and so you were all excited and overwhelmed. This is not that kind of joy. Emotions are very much a part of our lives. Remember the soul of the believers, that which makes us who we are, or the soul of man, is comprised of five elements, and they, they really interlock. We break them apart for academic purposes, but we, will, we draw them with five circles interlocking because they interrelate to one another. The first is self-consciousness, which is our identity. We know who we are. We look in the mirror, and on a good day, you know who you are. It's not too early in the morning and you've had your coffee, then you recognize yourself. The next stage is mentality. This is the thinking part of the soul. And we have seen that the Bible really describes two levels of thought. One it calls the noose, the other calls the cardia, the heart. And the heart is where the, is the center of the deep-seated belief systems are. that control our life in which we operate on. So we have the mentality of the soul... Then we have emotions. Now, there's an interplay here between what goes on in the mentality of the soul and our emotions. Then we have our volition down here, which is the chooser, the decider in the soul. And this is where personal responsibility flows from. And then we have our conscience. This is the seat of our norms and standards, our value system. And in the believer, there's usually a split, almost a, uh, schizophrenic sort of um, norms and standards. You have the, the norms and standards left over from when you were an unbeliever. 
And then you have the norms and standards you're picking up called divine viewpoint on the other side of your conscience. And this is the issue is when you're out of fellowship, we tend to move over to the old system and we want to operate like unbelievers and we want to live on the basis of those relativistic ideas that we picked up from the time that we were kids. And it's when we're only when we're under the filling of the Holy Spirit do we move over to the correct side of the conscience where divine viewpoint norms and standards reside. And the issue there, of course, is our, our volition. It's not environment. It's not genetics. It's, uh, it's our volition. Now, when we talk about emotion, emotions are usually defined as, as the appreciator of the soul or the responder of the soul. Now, God created Adam and Eve perfect, and they had emotion. So we know that emotion in and of itself is not sinful. Furthermore, we know that Jesus, in his humanity, demonstrated his emotions. He wept as he looked with compassion upon the crowd at at, uh, Lazarus' funeral and saw their grief. So Jesus, obviously, was impeccable. He had no sin. He was perfect. He never sinned. So emotion in and of itself is not sinful, What does become sinful, though, is the way we utilize emotion or start operating on the basis of emotion. Emotion as a responder responds to something. To what does emotion respond? It does not, let me disabuse you of this notion, it does not respond to external stimuli out here. Now, you may think it does, but remember, beauty, the old saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Remember that? So one person's beautiful woman is not necessarily the next person's beautiful woman. So beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which means that in conjunction with the value system, the norms and standards over here in the conscience, the mentality is going to look out here and perceive a set of circumstances, and they're going to be interpreted by, on the basis of the value system of the conscience, they're going to be interpreted by the mentality. And if that mentality says, okay, this is good, then there's going to be a positive emotional response. If the mentality looks at this and interprets the circumstances as bad, then the emotions are going to be uh, destructive emotions and harmful emotions, maybe emotional sins such as anger, hatred, whatever. And this is going to produce negative emotions. The emotions are responding to the interpretation that the mentality gives to the circumstances out here. Now, let me make this a little more complex. You see, we're not simple. Sometimes we break this down to make it simple, but none of you is a simple person. Okay? Let's just, you may think you are, and you may want to you know, convince your wife or your spouse that you're really just a simple, easy-to-understand person, but you know you're not. We have all this interplay going on here between the value system that we've developed, the mentality that interprets this, and what happens is we have to determine as believers what we're going to operate on in the mentality of our soul. What are we going to think about? And so from one day to the other, uh, depending on whether we're applying doctrine, whether we're advancing in a spiritual life and Uh, filled by means of the Holy Spirit, operating on doctrine, or whether we're in carnality and run by the sin nature, is going to determine how our mentality may interpret and respond to certain events. 
We may go through some extreme adversity one day, and we may look at it, and as soon as it hits, we say, you know, this is a test from the Lord. I have to respond with divine viewpoint. Let me see. And we, under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we immediately recall to mind a couple of pertinent doctrines, and we apply that to the situation, and we say, well, this is fantastic. I'm going to do it this way. And the result is that we go through it with stability. We don't get mad. We don't get angry. We don't throw a temper tantrum. We don't uh, put our foot through the floor or smash our fist through the windshield. And everything goes along real well. The next day, the exact same thing happens. And we find ourselves all torn up, yelling, screaming, completely out of fellowship. Uh, We wonder at the language that just came out of our mouth. And we realize that we really do seem a little schizophrenic at times. You know, Paul talked about that in in Romans chapter 7 when he said, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I do want to do. And that's just the normal process of the spiritual life as we're growing and advancing. Some days we operate on doctrine and some days we don't. And hopefully as we spend more and more time learning God's Word, the days that we do outnumber the days that we don't. But that is just a process of growth and time and it doesn't happen in a matter of days or weeks. It takes years, if not decades. So what we see here is when we think about joy, it's not the kind of emotional happiness that is common to believer and unbeliever alike. Everybody can be happy. Furthermore, it's not personality. So often we think of joy, we think of certain people and they're just always so very optimistic and they're kind of bouncy and bubbly and you know, sometimes you really want to just smack them one, but, but we all know people like that, and they're just always up. And then, uh, but they may not even be a believer, so it's not personality. And don't confuse it with such. It has to do with what's going on inside the soul, and it has to do with the doctrine that's there, and it produces a stability and a positive peace and contentment in the soul of the believer that doesn't get rocked by the external circumstances. And that can only come because we have occupation with Christ. We have our our mentality loaded with doctrine that's in the cardia down here, K for cardia. We have that loaded with doctrine. We're operating on positive volition under the filling of the Holy Spirit, divine viewpoint norms and standards, and the emotions are followed, but joy is not there. Joy is what flows out of the stability that comes from knowing Bible doctrine. So that's the first thing we need to notice from these two verses about joy, that the interpretation of joy or the interpretation of the events out here is going to be determined by the doctrine that is in our soul. The second point that we need to make in terms of observation is that the joy that Jesus speaks of in John 15:11 and in John 17:13 it has a little word in front of it. And notice that little word, it is the first person singular possessive pronoun, my. It is my joy. It is a joy that is uniquely related to Deity. It is not simply the the joy that Jesus had in His humanity, but it is His joy. It is His stability that He has, and that is a legacy that He has bequeathed 
to every member of the body of Christ. Isn't that fantastic? This is the kind of joy that we have, this inner happiness that we speak about, is particularly the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has left it to us. My joy, maybe that my joy may be made full in themselves. The third thing we should notice is that this joy is based on something. Notice that in the text? Both of these verses say almost the same thing. This joy is based on these things I have spoken in 1511. And in 1713, the phrase is, these things I speak. What are the these things that I have spoken and the these things that I speak? The these things are all the principles and precepts of Bible doctrine that the Lord Jesus Christ taught and which are further developed in the New Testament epistles. So the joy that Jesus bequeathed to us, the joy that James is talking about, that surpasses all circumstances, adversity, heartache, whatever the problem may be, the joy that we have there is a joy that is based upon Bible doctrine dominating the thinking of the soul. That's why the Christian life is a life of thought. It's a life of thinking. It's not a life of feeling. Now, that does not mean that it's wrong to have emotion or get excited about doctrine. We all ought to be excited about doctrine. We all ought to get excited about what the Lord's done for us and realize the the tremendous... In fact, I think the more that we study God's Word, the more we come to grips with the grace of God and all the provisions that God's uh, made for us, the more excited we ought to get sometimes. And I think that we're a little afraid of that. Uh, Sometimes that's just our culture and our background. I would say that just because you all are a church with a bunch of honkies in there and you just don't get excited about it. But I know that some of you quite won't understand that. A couple of weeks. That reminds me. Three weeks from tonight, which would be on the 26th, is that correct, Al? The 26th. We won't have Bible class on Wednesday night. We will have Bible class on Thursday night. That week I will be speaking at the Bible-based Fellowship of Temple Terrace, which is a suburb of Tampa, Florida. And uh, that's one of the men that's gone to the... uh, pastors conference for black pastors that I've been involved with the last couple of years and so I'll be down there teaching trying to introduce them to this whole concept of stress busters problem solving devices and everything else just just laying initial foundations to challenge them with some of the issues related to adversity and stress so that's going to be exciting I appreciate your prayers for that but anyway Th- those folks get real excited when you when you're teaching I mean it's really interesting if you've never I've been in a church like that. It's a lot of fun the way the feedback goes. I just have a ball with it. Anyway, there's nothing wrong with emotion. What's wrong is making emotion the criterion. See, what happens is we go to church or we go somewhere and it's a lot of fun and we learn some things and we get excited and it's fresh and it's new and all of a sudden we think that we can recapture those emotions again. And so all of a sudden the distortion that we have in our thinking is that that we go through this situation and we have this emotional response and we want to replicate it. And we think that only by replicating it can we achieve that same level of spirituality. We identify the response with what initiated it. And see, the next time we come to that, it's not going to be new or fresh anymore. We've already learned it. 
So it's not going to generate the same kind of response. And what happens, unfortunately, is people get involved in, in uh, all kinds of things, manipulations, in order to try to reduplicate those emotions. But it is, this is not emotion. It's not fleeting. It doesn't change. It's not unstable. It is stability itself because it is based on Jesus Christ who never changes. The fourth thing that we need to observe here on these verses is that to have the joy, this unique inner happiness that Jesus promised and that James mandated, we must first have doctrine in our soul. My, my, my. We must first have doctrine in our soul. We can't just think that it'll happen automatically. You can't apply what you don't know, and you can't know something, and I don't mean just have a casual passing acquaintance with it. You can't really know something unless you take the time to make it a priority, concentrate, think, and meditate on those doctrinal principles so that your thinking, the thinking in your soul, is renovated. So only by learning the doctrine, having our thinking renovated, can we have this kind of joy. Then, on the basis of these principles in our mentality, when we face suffering, adversity, and stress, then we can call upon the proper doctrine, the proper problem-solving devices and stress busters to put into place at that particular time. The fifth thing we notice here when we look at these verses is that there's a relationship to what James has been saying. Jesus said these things, the doctrine that he's been teaching. James started off, notice he, he lays the groundwork before he starts really focusing on the problems. And this is a church with tremendous problems. Before he deals with that, he first lays the groundwork of the priority, which is back in James 1, uh, 19 through 21, that we are to be quick to hear. That means doctrine is the number one priority in our life. Now, they have completely failed at that, and the result is that the church is falling apart. Now, there's only two ways to handle life's problems. Divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. There may be a thousand different manifestations of human viewpoint, but they are all human viewpoint. They are all wrong. Proverbs says twice, the Holy Spirit repeats himself, which means you need to really pay attention to this, that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. When man operates on the basis of empiricism and rationalism, he comes up with all kinds of psychological techniques and uh, plans and models for explaining human behavior and how to solve problems, but the result is that at best you manage your stress, but God says you can completely avoid it. So there's only two ways to handle problems, and the congregation that James is addressing is not handling the problem on the basis of divine viewpoint. When you reject the divine viewpoint, you are converting the outside pressure of adversity in the soul into stress in the soul, and the soul begins to fragment. It may not be noticeable at first. There may just be hairline fissures that take years to develop into major major fractures, but nevertheless, stress develops. Stress is the result of sin nature control of the soul. And what we have seen, let's turn back to James chapter 4, 
what we have seen is that this group of believers is operating from a very evil and destructive mental attitude base. Their thinking is dominated by bitterness, jealousy, self-absorption, and they have demonstrated a mastery of the arrogant skills. They have developed a slick form of competition among different members in the church, each one thinking they were a better teacher than someone else. So they have competition between the teachers. They, uh, one teaches that what he has is the wisdom of God, and then another comes along and says, no, that's really not it. I have a greater insight. God spoke to me last night. I have a better insight into the Scriptures. And so this creates an environment of arrogance and competition and division. I'm sure that it might have impressed some people, no matter what goes on in some congregations, somebody's always impressed. I'm amazed at how uh, uncomplimentary sheep can be, how unintelligent sheep can be at times, that they just go along with whatever seems to be exciting, stimulating, rather than looking at it uh, according to Scripture. But there's all kinds of trauma here. In fact, James says that it caused Disorder and every evil thing in verse 16 of chapter 3. The church is divided. There's quarreling. There's conflicts. There's warfare breaking out amongst the members. Now, if you've never been in a congregational meeting in a church where that happened, you've missed a lot, but don't hope for it. It's terrible to see that. I've had that experience once or twice, and it's a horrible thing to see, and the consequences of it can last for decades. And I have personally been involved in at least one of those and have seen how terrible the consequences are. And that's the result of carnality. Now, as we went through chapter 4, we saw that in the first two verses, James focused on the problems, the underlying problems of of lust and the sin nature. And then he went on from there to talk about the fact that, that all of this was because they were operating on a human viewpoint concept, what is called worldliness in the New Testament cosmos. They were wanted to be friends with the world, and James says that is hostility, antagonism, enmity with God. It is nothing more than arrogance, and God is opposed to the arrogant in verse 6, but he gives grace to the humble. And then in, chapter se- or in verse 7 through 10, we saw ten mandates which describe the humble believer. He is authority-oriented, submit to God. He resists the devil. He draws near to God. He cleanses his hands. This is confession, 1 John 1, 9, purify your hearts. That's the inner thinking part of the soul, and you purify your heart by learning uh, Bible doctrine. Be miserable, mourn and weep. That's suffering the consequences under uh, divine discipline for your sin, realizing that uh, as you've been pursuing something for happiness, that it really is producing misery And so what James is saying there is realize the emptiness of what you're pursuing and then concludes in verse 10 with the statement, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Then in verse 11, he changes tack again and he comes back to the underlying problem that is disrupting the congregation. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. 
But who are you who judge your neighbor? Now, if you just look at this superficially in the English, you will notice that this is an example of repetition. It's very easy to look at this. He says, um, he who speaks against a brother judges his brother. He says, brethren, brothers, used three times in the passage. And then he shifts to a synonym, neighbor. So four times he talks about a brother and neighbor talking about another believer. He uses the word judge. He judges his brother, judges the law, judge the law. And then you're not a judge of it. Four times he uses the verb for judging in verse uh, 11. And then he uses the noun and then the verb in verse 12. So we're talking about judging and we're talking about other believers. This is the opposite of loving one another. Well, let's stop and before we get too much, too further in, too much further into it, let's exegete the mandates. Starts off with a present active imperative of prohibition from kata laleo. Kata laleo looks like this in the Greek. It's a compound word made up of the preposition kata plus the verb laleo. K-A-T-A-L-A-L-E-O. Kata is a preposition meaning against. Laleo is a verb meaning to speak. And it means to speak against, literally, if you broke it down etymologically, but it really talks about slander, gossip, judging, maligning, running someone down, trying to destroy their reputation, getting involved in in character assassination. So it is a prohibition, a present active prohibition. The present imperative always indicates a standard operating procedure in the believer's life. It's continuous action, something that should characterize it. The fact that it's a prohibition means that they need to stop doing this, that they are engaged in this activity at this particular time. They are uh, speaking against one another. We've already seen indications of this already. They're quarreling, conflicting with one another back in 4.1. Further back, they have jealousy and selfish ambition in verse 14. And all of that has erupted in a congregation where they are running each other down, each person trying to build their reputation on the destruction of somebody else's reputation. So they are involved in this. Now the, the prohibition is do not speak against one another. The genitive plural all alone means one another is believers. So this is just the opposite of the royal law of love, which was laid down in James 2.7 and in John 13.34 and 35, is to be the key characteristic to the believer's life. Jesus commanded us that we are to love one another just as He loved us. And when He said love one another, the word used for one another is all alone, the same word that we find here. So this is just the opposite of the royal law that is to characterize the believer and is to be one of the key characteristics of our witness to unbelievers. Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. So the behavior of this congregation is 180 degrees in the opposite direction of what it should be. But notice, he says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He's still talking to believers. He is not treating them as unbelievers. He says, then, he who speaks against a brother, another believer, or judges his brother. 
So he's always talking about believers. You know, one of the things that always bothers me is when somebody calls me brother. And every now and then you run into that. And it just, you know, I, I don't have any siblings, so I never had the opportunity of calling them or not calling them brother or sister. But you always run into that at some of these things. And it's amazing. I'll tell a little story on Dan. I remember after about his first semester in uh, seminary down there at Capitol, he'd call me up and he'd say, what do I do about this when everybody wants to call me brother so-and-so? And I said, well, you know, that's just the way it is when you get out in the Christian community. There's some people who just think that that's a more spiritual form of address and you just sort of put up with it, but try to ask and find some nice, polite way to ask them not to do that. That You, you really don't like that. But some, some, for some reason, people get the idea that we ought to call one another brother. But all this indicates is that we are all in the royal family of God together. And because we are all in the royal family of God, we are to treat one another the same way. Remember, here's the issue. Here's a triangle representing the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father so loved the world that He what? He sent His unique Son, the second person of the Trinity... God the Son to go to the earth and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a classic example of impersonal or unconditional love. It's not based on who and what we are, but on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So, Jesus Christ is sent and He dies on the cross for unbelievers, for all manner of sinners... And at that time, they are envisioned not as believers, but as unbelievers. He does not view those for whom he dies as believers. That is the error of limited atonement, that Christ died only for believers. So he dies for unbelievers, he dies for sinners, he dies for those who are at enmity with God, hostility. They're not favorable to God, they're, they're obnoxious to God, and... They are not at all pleasant to God, and God's righteousness has rejected them. Now, what happens is you have uh, X, Y, and Z representing different kinds of believers who respond to the gospel, trust the Lord, and are saved. Now, X is a very nice person. Y is perhaps that obnoxious, wealthy guy that came into the congregation that we dealt with back in, in James chapter 2, uh, although in that situation he was not a believer, but this guy is the, we'll just say he's, he's, he's an OB. He's the obnoxious believer. Nobody really likes him. He has a lot of personality flaws that make him somewhat uh, objectionable. Maybe he, he even shows up on occasion without having taken a bath or changed his clothes. So uh, you've got some real problems there. He's just not very pleasant. And then over here, Now, we have to protect people's privacy here, you know. You've been out on that submarine for so long, you've forgotten the rules of conduct here. Anyway, we have, we have three kinds of believers. The nice guy, the, the, um, the guy who's the, the uh, uh, obnoxious believer, and then over here we just have the guy that came in. This is the street person. This is, this is the guy who's obnoxious because of his personality. This is the street person. He's poor. He's the beggar that came in off the street back in James 2. Now, the thing is that God's love for the nice, attractive, uh, winsome personality type believer is exactly the same 
as his love for the obnoxious believer and is exactly the same as his love for the uh, beggar who hasn't changed clothes or taken a bath in six or seven months. Now what happens is we're down here and we say, well, it's real easy to love the nice believer. But we have troubles when it comes to the obnoxious guy or obnoxious woman. I don't want to leave the ladies out. Or the the beggar that comes in off the street and hasn't had a bath in a while. So we, we have a hard time here. And sometimes, especially if the obnoxious believer has antagonized us in some way, it's easy to get involved in some sort of sin of the tongue and start running him down if we're out of fellowship. And, you know, well, you know that guy, he just doesn't know how to relate to people. He's not very social. He doesn't have any social skills. He talks all the time. He's conceited. We just start running him down. It may all be true. See, that's the thing about gossip and slander and maligning. It doesn't matter whether it's true or false. It is, it's negative and it flows from the sin nature and it's designed to destroy people. It doesn't matter whether or not everything you say is true. It may all be true. He may be the worst person that could ever walk through the back door of the church. He may be, have all kinds of sins. He may have a terrible personality. But nevertheless, we are to love him in the same way that Christ loved the church. Now, I know that's terribly convicting, so let's move on. We have the third category person, the same thing there. We're to love them in the same way as Christ loves them because Christ is not differentiating His love from the nice, attractive, winsome believer, which of course is you, and the obnoxious believer, which is somebody sitting on the other side of the congregation, or the uh, street person who just happened to stumble in and uh, might even smell of yesterday's cheap wine. But... That's the situation. We're to love one another just as Christ loved us. That is what exemplifies the church. And we are all in the royal family of God. We, in the eyes of God, as sinners, before we came to salvation, we're all minus R. And even though, relatively speaking, some of us may think that that one is better than another, as far as God's concerned, none is better than another. We are all equally obnoxious to Him. And there is nothing in us that is particularly attractive. There's nothing in you that's any more attractive than the person across the church who you think is, is really saved by the grace of God. And, and you're, just, you're, you're, you're just barely saved by the grace of God. Well, that's the situation here. And they're just running one another down. And the congregation is characterized by all sorts of, of uh, blasphemy. I mean, all sorts of gossip, slander. And they are spreading lies about one another, which gets into the whole doctrine of the public lie, which we'll get to in a minute. The command is, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks, and here it is, the uh, articular present active participle, which describes the general characteristics of the person as a maligner. He who speaks against a brother... Or judges his brother. So this shows us by use of crino here, the verb for judging. This shows us that speaking against is synonymous to judging. This is just the sins of the tongue operating on, on a malignant view of another person. He who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks against the law. So by engaging in gossip or slander 
maligning someone, telling tales on someone. It always amazes me. Not, I don't want to imply that pastors are gossips. But every now and then, and I'm, I don't want to, I'm not implying that, I just wanted to say that. But every now and then, and this happened this week, I was talking with another pastor, and another, a third pastor's name came into the conversation because of something that had come up. And inadvertently, something that had happened in this other pastor's life was brought into the conversation. And I had heard a rumor here or there about this other pastor. But I, the older I get the more I just don't want to know these things. I don't want it in my mind. I don't want to worry about it. I don't want to be concerned about it. I mean, if it happened, if it's in the past, it's the Lord's issue to deal with it and to clean it up. I don't want to know about it. Now, if it's a current problem and it's creating uh, a lot of trauma among his congregation and may involve my congregation at some point, then, then it's necessary to know about these things if you might be involved. But otherwise... I don't want to know about it. And I just, afterwards I, I thought about it and I said, you know, I just feel a little dirty after hearing something like that. And it wasn't said that way and it wasn't said maliciously, even in the context of the conversation. It was said, well, this all happened years ago and there's recovery there and so this is great. Well, I didn't want to know about it anyway, even if it was years ago. You see, we just need to keep our mouths shut because if you ever go through any kind of circumstance in your life when you really blow it, you really don't like other people talking about it. You, you just as soon cover it up and, and, and not have it a subject to conversation, and, and, and so would they. And so it's only good manners and being polite not to bring those things up and to let the past be in the past and to praise God that somebody got past it because we have all failed at one time or another. And what happens whenever we slander, whenever we gossip, true or not, it's still gossip. True or not, it's still slander. True or not, it's still... What we are doing is we are speaking against the law. And here we have the Greek word, basic word for law, namos. N-O-M-O-S. Now, namos is used a number of different ways in Scripture, so we have to make some interpretive decisions here. Namos is used of the Mosaic law. It's used of the entire Old Testament Scripture. It's used of the entire canon of Scripture, Old and New Testament. And it's also used for the, all of the absolutes of Bible doctrine taken as a whole or for individual ones, such as the law of liberty, the law of love, these kinds of things. Now, a couple of things we ought to note here in order to have the right interpretation is that it lacks the article in the Greek. It is just namas. The lack of the article generally indicates quality or essence. Now, the second thing we need to note is the context. Always judge a word by context, and sometimes it's important to go first to that same letter or work of literature, the same author, to see how that author tends to use that word. And in James 1.25, we find the phrase, the perfect law, and then in James 2.12, we find the law of liberty. And these are terms used by James to refer to the absolutes of doctrine for the church-age believer. The third thing we need to note is that the law of freedom, the law of liberty in 2.12, emphasizes the principle that freedom derives only from a secure foundation of Bible doctrine. Fallen man is born enslaved to sin and after salvation, 
through negative volition and carnality, we can put ourselves right back in bondage to the sin nature. But fortunately, because of the grace recovery procedure, 1 John 1, 1.9, we can get out from under that. Namas, point number four, Namas here in 4.11 represents the entire body of doctrine, all the mandates and all the prohibitions for the spiritual life of the church age. So, what we see here is whenever you judge a believer, you are speaking against the Scriptures. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. Sometimes I get confused what I've covered and what I haven't covered yet, especially this time of the week because I've already studied what I'm going to teach next Sunday. So sometimes I can't remember if I'm going to teach it or have taught it. But the thing that's impressing me as I'm going through John 14 is that Jesus keeps saying, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And how you respond to me is how you respond to the Father. And the Scripture is the Word of God. And in Second, I mean, First Corinthians chapter two sixteen, it's called the mind of Christ. So that means that how you respond to the Bible doctrine is how you respond to God. A lot of people say, "Well, I love the, love God, but I'm not sure that I can believe that in the Bible." Well, if you don't believe that in the Bible, then you don't love God, because how you respond to the mind of Christ and how you respond to Jesus and the teachings in the Scriptures is exactly how you're responding to God, whether you want to admit it or not. And a lot of folks just don't. They'd rather sit back and make God be whatever they want Him to be. But that same principle is here. Is whenever you sin, whenever you judge, you are specifically saying something against the law. Now, what is that? And that is the law of freedom. The law in the New Testament is based upon grace. It is based upon grace. Not that there wasn't grace in the Old Testament. We will see in our study of the Old Testament on Sunday morning that grace runs throughout the Old Testament. But in a special way, grace predominates as the modus operandi in the church age. It is more evident and more manifest in the church age than it was in the Old Testament, even though it was very clear, very manifest in the Old Testament. God has always dealt with man on the basis of grace, never on the basis of man's works or on the basis of of law. So the concept in the New Testament is grace. So when we see this phrase here, what underlies the law that James is talking about here is the grace of God. When we start running down another believer, what we're doing essentially is saying, God, you didn't have any business dealing with that obnoxious believer in grace. He's not worth it. He's, he's, He's got a foul personality. He talks too much. He's too quiet. He never talks enough. Whatever it is, whatever bothers you, whatever grates on your personality that he has, by running him down, whatever he's done, you shouldn't have saved him. Look at him. He just treats your, your grace licentiously. He's committed adultery. He runs around. He's a homosexual. Whatever it is, usually you focus on some overt sin. Whatever it is, you focus on that and say, God, you are really wrong. That's essentially what we say when we slander somebody. We're saying, God... You really didn't need to deal with them in grace. You're wrong. It is, we're speaking against the law and we are judging the law. We're doing the same thing Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Remember the situation? God came along and He said, here's one tree you can't eat from. Everything else you can eat. I've provided everything you need, everything that will satisfy you, and everything that will provide for your physical nourishment and health. There's nothing I've left out. But you can't eat from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Then the serpent came along, the crafty, shrewd serpent, who is really a manifestation of Satan. Satan indwelt the serpent and speaks to 
the woman and says, Did God really say? And the way the serpent phrases it is beginning to question the sufficiency of God. Does God really know? Does God really know what He's doing? By putting the question that way and asking, the, this is the danger in answering certain questions. Eve should have been smart enough to say, well, that's an illegitimate question. You know, that's sort of like asking the question, have you, have you quit beating your wife? However you answer it, you're in trouble. When the serpent said, has God really said what he's, in, what he's putting Eve in the position of doing is judging the validity of God's prohibition. And she walked right into the trap. That's why it says he was the craftiest in the garden. He was the shrewdest, the most cunning. He knew just where to put the trap. And he phrased the question in such a way that it put her in a mindset where she had to decide whether or not God was right or wrong. She had to judge the mandate. And rather than saying, wait a minute, I'm not going to walk into that trap. You just go somewhere else today, serpent. She decided to answer the question. And by even answering the question, she had already predisposed herself to sin and to disobedience. And that's what we do whenever we get involved in the sins of the tongue. We're judging a brother. speaking. We are indeed speaking against the law and judging the law. And then he goes to the next level, James does, and he says, but if you judge the law, you judge the law by gossip, maligning, or slander. If you gossip, malign, or slander, you judge the law. And if you judge the law, then you are not a doer. And there's the word that we found back in James 2 again and again, that, that we are to be a, not just a hearer of the word, but a poieo, an applier of the word. And so he says, now taking us full circle back to the subject in the first chapter, if you are judging the law... You are not an applier of the law, but a judge of it. You have set yourself up as the absolute standard rather than letting the grace of God and God's revelation be the absolute standard. So what has happened here in this congregation is that the reversionist believers have completely failed to use the stress busters that God has provided for them. First of all, they have failed to use rebound. That's why you have that correction back in verses 7 through 10, that they are to draw near to God and God will draw near to you by means of cleansing your hands. That's confession of sin. They failed to use 1 John 1, 9. Second, they failed to walk by means of the Spirit. They were walking according to the flesh. They evidenced all the sins of the flesh, all the sins produced by the area of weakness, sins of the tongue, uh, mental attitude sins, and overt sins. Third, they were failing to trust God exercising the faith rest drill. There's no authority orientation here. And of course, you have to have authority orientation starting at the faith rest drill to get anywhere with grace orientation. They're not dealing with each other in grace. They're dealing with each other on the basis of whatever pseudo standard they have. So there's no grace orientation. And then lastly, there's no doctrinal orientation. Well, if you don't have the foundation of those basic stress busters in place, then everything will fall apart. No filling of the Spirit, no confession, no doctrinal orientation, no grace orientation, no faith rest drill, 
and then you don't have a fortress. You're not protected. Stress will invade the soul and start to fragment it, and you become double-minded, a Daisukas believer who is controlled by the sin nature and fragmented from the inside out. So without those basics, their spiritual life just fragments and falls apart. Now, we are about out of time, and the next thing we need to cover is the doctrine of the public lie. And since I don't want to start that, we won't get any further than the definition. I'll just wait and get that next time. So, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this evening, to study it, to be challenged by it, to be reminded that our stability, our our hope, our Our peace, our tranquility comes from you. It's supernatural. It's part of the production of God, the Holy Spirit, as we walk by means of the Spirit. His fruit is love, joy, peace. Father, this joy is supernatural. Bequeathed to us from uh, Jesus Christ as part of our spiritual asset package in the church age. Father, we pray that we might keep our focus and attention locked on your word, on your grace provision, that we might... Uh, not be distracted by the adversity we, we face, the testing, the trials, that we might continue to focus on your grace and on your magnificent provision for us, that we might grow spiritually, advance, and that we might glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.